Hello, my magical friends. My name is Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 42nd time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. So first, hello if you are new, especially if you've come from my latest guest spot on the Daily Zeitgeist. And if you haven't already listened, I had a lot of fun over there again. It was just a really good time. So if you want to hear me over there or hear me sing, which I don't get to do here, there is that. I was on on Friday's episode, so you can go check that out. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Today we have a little bit of a busy time. I only finished watching a few things and then I wanted to get into all the news that we had this week before we get into today's topic. So, of course, as always, I managed to watch Tropical Roots Precure over the weekend, so I am still caught up. Not really anything to say about this particular episode this week, though it was a good one. I always enjoy some really fun stuff with very cute villains. Understanding the villains, I guess. You know, humanizing them. That's always a good time. Let's see. Next is... Untitled Magical Girl Act 3 dropped last week. We've talked about this for the podcast before, but for new listeners, this is a project that's still quite mysterious, but features three sets of girls representing different decades in Magical Girl aesthetic and design. The first act introduced the 80s group, and the second act revealed the villain, who deviously asked all girls to join her in becoming a Magical Girl. Now, Act 3 was a fun one, as it was a bit of a theme song, actually, for the 80s girls. And oh boy, is it 80s. The Unmagic Twitter page has already said that the next video will drop on the 15th, so we'll definitely talk about that after it drops. We still don't really know what the project actually is, but so far, it's very interesting. By the way, Magical Girl fans will recognize the theme song's singer, Hiroko Kasahara, as the voice of Mint in Magical Angel Sweet Mint and Pooh in Magic Knight Ray Earth, both 90s Magical Girl series. Next, I finished Star Twinkle Precure from 2019. It was a hell of a finale, and I was emotionally wrecked. (laughs) Anyone who has seen it will know what I'm talking about, but this section is not a place for spoilers. So I was very sad to finish it, and also the introduction of Cure Grace from Heal and Good Precure in the final episode was really fascinating because it feels like it's been so long since I've seen Nodoka, but you know, that season only finished a few months ago. Star Twinkle Precure is definitely a fantastic season of Precure, so I highly recommend it for anyone who has not seen it yet. Now for news. Oh my goodness, there's a lot of news this week, information and announcements. So let's get started. First, Episode 35, we talked to Kevin Credo, who is the writer of the Magical Girl novel series, Ellery Moonbeam. So Ellery Moonbeam is finally coming to Tapas Premium starting Thursday, July 8th. So you can go over there on that date and check out the first few chapters. And subsequent chapters will be releasing after that. Next, the latest announcement for the Pretty Rhythm series is Watcha Purimaji. 
and it looks like we're finally getting an actual Magical Girl series. This is very interesting, very exciting, in particular because one Junichi Sato is actually on board in this particular season. This is a name that will become very familiar if you're not already, not just from Magical Girls in general, but even just this episode, which we'll get to later. So um, there is some information, though I don't know if there's any in English yet, but you can go to the website, so I will link that in the show notes so you can check it out. The next announcement is for Season 2 of Makia Record. This is the spin-off series slash smartphone game for Madoka Magica, and this is very exciting to see that we're getting another season. Of course, there's also going to be another Madoka movie coming out, hopefully next year, if all goes well. And also some extra side stories for Magia Record itself. So that's really cool. Very exciting. So this season starts at the end of this month on July 31st. To be honest, I have not watched season one yet. So maybe I'm going to try to catch up quickly before... But otherwise, yes, you will see a watch-along episode with me of that season because I'm pretty sure I should be able to watch it online and that should be no problem. <laughs> Next is, oh yes, so this one I decided to add to the list just in case, but for anyone who is a fan of My Little Pony, I know this is one that is a little bit more contested as to whether or not it belongs in the genre, but I like to be on the safe side, the more accepting side. My Little Pony, A New Generation is coming to Netflix on September 24th. So we have a whole new cast of characters. To be honest, I don't know anything about My Little Pony, but the characters are very cute. A promotional video came out with the voice actors who are playing the various characters. And there are a lot of names I like, so I'm very excited for fans of My Little Pony to enjoy it. And the art style is also very cute. Next, uh, in comics news, well, we have two big ones. So first, uh, Iron Circus Comics announced during the Pride Month celebrations a bunch of upcoming comics from their pipeline. And one of those happens to be a Magical Girl series. So Spiral Guardian Starry Night is coming soon. This is being illustrated by Amanda Lafernay. I want to say is her how you pronounce it. I should probably check that out later, but in any case... Yeah, and finally, this is news. If you're a Magical Girl fan, you probably have already heard. But, of course, at the beginning of the month, we get Nakoshi Magazine. And we get announcements not just for what just was released, but also for what's coming next. So, I think the news first dropped due to pictures taken from people who had purchased the latest magazine. And the news was that there's going to be a sequel to Mermaid Melody Pitchy Pitchy Pitch called Pitchy Pitchy Pitch Aqua. For people who have been listening to the podcast, you probably remember that last year there was a curious pop-up shop with Nakoshi Magical Girls from the 2000s and 90s. So there was Saint Tail, there was Shigo Kiara, there was Mermaid Melody, and there was Tokyo Mew Mew. And everyone was wondering, what is this about? And so I had at that time predicted that they were testing the waters to see if there was any interest in future things uh, with these characters. So we've known for some time that there's Tokyo Mew Mew, new, the animated series coming soon, plus the comics of Return and Tokyo Mew Mew Ole, which is still currently running in Nakoshi Magazine. 
And there is also a spin-off sequel, I think, of Saint Tail, Kaito Saint Tail Girls, if I'm not mistaken. And Shigo Kata did have a re-release for the anniversary, which included some new four-panel comics, so those were cute. And now we finally have Peachy Peachy Pitch Aqua. So this is a sequel series. We only have one visual that appears to look like an older Lucia and Kaito. And there's also a small, small little thing that Kodansha posted on their Twitter, which is kind of a clue to our protagonist, who is going to be Lucia's daughter. We know there's going to be a new blue love, and yeah, it's going to be very exciting. So I know I'm excited. I'm sure you will all be excited. Everything says that this is the September edition of the magazine. It releases on August 1st, so... I'm already planning to buy this, and I'm going to put it next to the one I bought back in January for Unrivaled Naomi Tenkaichi. It is the Magical Girl Space Tennis series featuring one Naomi Osaka as the main character. And I had gotten that first issue with the first chapter and loved it immediately. I was obsessed. So I am really looking forward. I had pre-ordered the first issue of the full comic on its own. Really, really looking forward to finally reading the rest of what has been published so far. And I'm definitely going to be collecting that comic as it continues to be released. So that's super exciting. Okay, well, with all of that, we are finally finished with our news. And now let's go on to today's topic. So I'm going to be honest with you all, I'm really bad at YouTube. Like, I'm just not on it as much as I think the average person is. And, you know, that's all well and good. I don't personally mind that, you know, I don't have an issue with that. It just feels like it is a world that I'm never going to be fully part of, and that's okay. You know, that's just like that corner of the internet might just not be for me. So. When it comes to YouTubers, I don't know a lot either, especially when it comes to things like Magical Girls. You would think I would know more, but no. That being said, in January, I got a very lovely Kofi donation from someone, and in that, got a message saying that this person really wanted to talk to me about Magical Girls. And it turns out that this was a YouTuber, Clear and Sweet, who also goes by Kai, and Kai was working on a project for their YouTube channel about trying to go through the process of ranking every single Magical Girl series in existence. Something that is very challenging, to be sure. But we decided, yes, let's go through it. This is going to be really fun. <laughs> and it was supposed to only take maybe 15, 20 minutes. And we ended up talking for two hours <laughs> we just had such a good time talking about magical girls and i was like listen you need to be on my podcast too to talk about magical girls and when i asked them oh what do you want to talk about they told me that their favorite was princess tutu so as soon as they brought it up i was like awesome because uh you'll hear more about my experience with princess tutu in a minute but this was a series that i always knew that once I actually watched it, I was going to fall in love with, and I was dead on, correct. So 
I was really, really excited to finally watch this very classic Magical Girl series, a very, very popular series. I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. <laughs> and just very charming characters, very charming style. And as I mentioned before, this is another one of many works by Junichi Sato. And Kai is also a very big Sato fan. So that is also an aspect as well that's very important. So with that, I think that's everything else I have to say. Please enjoy my conversation with Kai, aka Clear and Sweet. Today we are going to be talking about Princess Tutu from 2002. And I'm very excited for our guest today. Can you please introduce yourself? Absolutely, Ayu. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to come talk to you. My name is Kai. On the internet, I go by clear and sweet. I go by either masculine or gender neutral pronouns. I am a big fan in writing of the singular they when gender is either irrelevant or unknown. Mm -hmm. And I think that English suffers by not you know, having that. And I think we are actively changing that. And I think that's a great thing. Mm. So I, I would like to consider most of the analyses that I do and most of the, you know, work that I create to not be affected by my gender. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I would use they, but I acknowledge there are circumstances where um, if me being male matters or identifying as male, then I will, uh, he pronouns are fine too. Mm. I have a YouTube channel where I do long-form critical analysis of magical girl shows. We've done Adolescence Vutna, done Madoka Magica, long breakdowns talking about these magical girl shows in depth. And I'm so happy to get the opportunity to be with you today to talk about what is my favorite and the best magical <laughs> girl show. Oh, Princess Tutu. great, great. So before we talk about Princess Tutu, can you tell us your history with magical girls in general? Oh, absolutely. And it goes all the way back. I looked it up. It was um, Sailor Moon airing on Toonami in North America in 2000 and 2001, if you'll remember. The Negaverse and all that. Hmm. I remember watching all those <laughs> episodes. And uh, I remember very, very distinctly being on vacation and watching Sailor Moon R film, Promise of the Rose, that was airing on Toonami and just having my mind blown by the depth behind the story and, you know, the cinematography of it all and the weight behind that film. And uh, that was kind of like this not really formative thing, but it stuck in my mind for years mm -hmm. and years until I had so much time in college. I was just playing World of Warcraft and just uh, wasting away my time. And I decided to go back and ch check Sailor Moon. And mm. I watched every episode of Sailor Moon in the old dub, in the original, <laughs> you know, Japanese. And uh, I watched it multiple times through. And even Sailor Stars, which what didn't have a dub at the time. Um, and it, I was presented with this question of why is this, which I watched at 12 years old back in 2001, 11 and 12, why is it different than all the other shows 
why am I able to enjoy this at 22 years old as opposed to 12 years old? And how does it retain that type of something to it that makes it more interesting than something like Power Rangers, which I had all but forgotten? <laughs> Answering that question was kind of the springboard into my work um, with textual criticism and um, answering that question. So for the next couple of years, I set about figuring out what it was about the original run of Sailor Moon that made it so engaging to me. And in doing so, then I moved on, of course, to the rest of the genre. And that was actually the winner of 2011, which um, was a great time to be coming in and becoming an anime fan. And I had the opportunity to, after watching Sailor Moon on repeat, to go immediately into watching Madoka Magica as it was airing. Hmm. And that was quite the experience, you know, having just just remembered all those values that the magical girls hold and translating it directly. I later, of course, watched tons of Pretty Cure, Cardcaptor Sakura, and um, uh, Utna and Tutu, of course. Hmm. And I, um, yeah, and that led in my mind to figuring out what it was that I liked about Sailor Moon, about the magical girl genre, and creating a, an essay, a long-form essay about that called Grace versus Glamour, the Duality of Sailor Moon, and where I talked about the works that came after Sailor Moon and the um, themes of the genre and how they are reflected in the works that came after Sailor Moon. Hmm. Um, and presented that at Anime Boston and, um, you know, have just gone on from there talking about and thinking about the magical girl genre. Hmm. That's great. And um, have you checked out any other stuff before Sailor Moon? I am not the best person to talk about that. I have reached out to other people that uh, know the genre before the magical girl genre, but one of the videos, in fact, that I I'm longing to do so much is a video titled when Junichi Sato created the modern magical girl genre. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not going to spoil it, which episode it is, but somewhere in the first season, Sailor Moon becomes something more than was in the manga. And I directly attribute it to Junichi Sato. I guess somebody who will be very relevant for the rest of this discussion. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. We've talked about um, Sato in reference to Magic Users Club. Yeah, Magical Doremi as well. Yeah, as well. And then Pre-Tier as well. Like he's got his hands in a lot of uh, places and definitely is someone who is very pivotal to what magical girls are today. Even right up to Hugto Pretty Cure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's very interesting to think about like what it is about his perspective that really changes things but i think that maybe princess tutu is also a great example of that that we can get into absolutely yeah so you said that you got into princess tutu uh, after it aired so can you tell mm -hmm. us more about that how you got into yeah. it yeah i was looking for shows that were directly related to sailor moon and of course the kind of the chronology of post sailor stars goes um, i think it's cutie honey f right a lot of them Fun Fun mm -hmm. Pharmacy comes after it, and then Magical Dory Me begins, and then goes on to Futariwa Precure in, in Toei. Um, and about the time that Precure began, um, Sato 
went off to do his own thing and really it started a company that really only produced up to about aria the animation but princess tutu was one of those and he brought forward with him a lot of the people who had worked on stuff like sailor moon and magic users club and the like and for our purposes in telling the story of princess tutu he was able to get ikuko ito to come mm-hmm. And basically, she is the creative force behind what would become Princess Tutu. But I've gotten away from my own personal (laughs) story. Basically, I was just looking for other things that were like Sailor Moon. And Princess Tutu is very much like Sailor Moon and very, very highly regarded for good reason. Hmm. Yeah. It's definitely very unique in the magical girl genre. I also got into it late. Like, I didn't actually fully watch the series until we decided to talk about it for the podcast. But I discovered it when I was at a convention uh, with my best friend, Bianca, former guest of the podcast. And uh, we were just kind of walking around different rooms where they were airing different series. And one of them had Princess Tutu. And I was like, oh, this is super cute. Because, of course, Ikuto Ito has a very distinct art style that uh, can be recognized anywhere I mean especially if you've watched other works of hers Um, so you can see her art style in Sailor Moon in in Magic Users Club and other series but yeah we were like drawn right away to the characters and their designs and the themes of ballet and theater and so on and so I always thought oh I'm gonna have to check out this series later but I just never got around to it Can I just say that's so crazy that you discovered it so organically like that and it wasn't just recommended and forced upon you by other Magical Girl fans that say, no, you really need to watch this. Yeah, I think it's also because, you know, at that time, I, of course I knew about the Magical Girl genre and had already been watching a ton of series within the genre, but I wasn't really in any fandom spaces, if that makes sense. That wasn't until a little bit later. So I would go to something like this and it would just be, you know, generally like, oh, we are fans of Japanese series, so we're going to check them out. And yeah, I have like mixed feelings about my experiences at conventions, but in sure. this particular case, I think it, it worked out pretty well. It was also like a free convention, I think, that so that also affected the... Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I miss conventions. Uh, can I just say that after after mm-hmm. the lockdown and everything, I'd be very happy when conventions return, both the good and the bad. Yeah, you know, they are definitely a very interesting part of fandom culture, to be sure. I haven't been to a convention in a very long time, but they were definitely a very interesting part of my development as a fan of things, if that makes sense. Totally. But yeah, so it was like a thing where it's like, oh, this room is playing like Full Metal Alchemist and this room is playing something else. And oh, what is this room playing? And there were like maybe two or three other people in that room watching this series. So I think we just kind of chose it because it was so empty. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. I don't want to say it's a problem because I love it. But isn't there, I guess, a stigma with a show called Princess Tutu In Mm. the West, it is very off-putting to kind of just have something so girly and so feminine presenting. And, uh, you know, it makes it hard to get a lot of people into it because it's a show called Princess Tutu. 
Yeah, I think definitely that title will give people an image of what to expect that might not necessarily be accurate. (laughs) I think everyone has their own biases to work on. So if someone is hesitant to watch that show because of the title, that that's really, that's something that they have to deal with. (laughs) That is very wise. Yes. But yeah, definitely for me, I was like, oh, sure, like it's a ballet series. I could see the theatrical influence, the German influence, uh, like in storytelling and so on. Oh, my God. Yeah. It wasn't really an issue, but I'm also someone who's always like loved like fairy tales and Disney movies and so on. So I would never be personally thwarted by a title like that anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) But I could definitely imagine someone would have a Barbie image with that kind of <laughs> title <laughs> yeah 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 i do want to say that ikako ito is on record having said that her love of ballet and classical music was the impetus for this show and yeah. when she was working at toei she just sketched out the ideas of a ballerina and then two ballerinas and then that became what princess tutu was Yeah, yeah. Her work is like so interesting in terms of her influence and she's definitely also a little underrated. I think especially because Ito and Sato do work together a lot. So sometimes I think Sato gets a bit more um, credit. From what I understand about him, having researched him a lot, he's my favorite director. While he is a good storyboarder and a very good director, a number of Sailor Moon, um, he boards eight of the Tutu episodes. He's worked on Cowboy Bebop and Evangelion and has the most respect from all these directors. Um, Mm -hmm. Very good at his job, but he usually takes the role as series director. And specifically for Princess Tutu, he usually just enables the other people around him to go do what they want to do and is more of a guiding figure than any type of auteur director that needs to have it his way. Mm. So most of this show creatively is from the um, mind of Ikiko Ito and then the creatives like the um, series composer Michiko Yokote. Mm-hmm. They kind of just like take it and go with it and run with it. And it's an original anime too. So it doesn't have to follow a manga or anything. Mm-hmm. And it has that freedom to go be wild. And like I said, this wasn't made at Toei. So it really is its own kind of unique spirit in the anime landscape yeah definitely it's very unique and yeah you mentioned yeah Michiko Yokote she's done a lot of other magical girl works as well like up to and including the present day really yeah she wrote the original story in uh, both comic and animated form for Mermaid Melody Pitch Pitchy Pitch oh there you go she worked on Q-High Earth Defense Club Love she worked on she also worked on uh, Magic Users Club along with Judici Sato. So yeah, these folks are all working together. They know what they're doing at this point. They right. are veterans yeah. of the genre. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they're totally competent. And, and you can see it in the show, just in how it's run, how it's put together, and how much creativity there is in it. Yeah, exactly. It's a very interesting series. And uh, just before we jump into more depth, I want to see if we can try to summarize at least the beginning of how this story pans out because it's very like well put together so at the beginning you think it's going to go one way and then everything kind of changes so how would you summarize the beginning of princess tutu how our story Hmm. starts 
I honestly have said many times that I think the first episode of Princess Tutu is is one of the strongest first episodes get the picture type starts out of any anime. So the concept here is that there is a duck, a literal yellow waterfowl who watches a prince dance on a lake and she wants to dance with the prince, but she's just a duck. And then by the machinations of a long dead storyteller named Drosselmeyer, her wish is granted. She can be a human and she can dance with the prince, but in exchange, she must take up the role of Princess Tutu and is obligated to recover the prince's heart, which has been shattered after a battle with a raven. And of course, the catch is that she can never express her feelings to the prince lest she transform into a speck of light and disappear forever. Yes, yes. So it's very interesting because it starts off with like this premise. It's very, uh, it's already very heartbreaking. But, you know, it's also, again, like going into traditional fairy tales and ballet and theater. You have, you know, a duck. Uh, everyone knows the story of like the ugly duckling, for example. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Definitely, I think it's a reference to that. And ducks and uh, swans are both very uh, big themes of this series. But one thing I really love is that her name never changes. So her name is always Duck or in uh, Japanese Ahiru. And definitely got a lot of very clear themes that are not necessarily very commonly looked at within Magical Girls. But like you said, the heart uh, has been shattered and so she has to, one by one, rescue each piece and give it back to him. So, yeah, it's, it seems like a very interesting take on the Monster of the Week concept, to be sure. And it's, you know, a magical girl who exists only to rescue one person, which is also very interesting. Yes, and the thing about Princess Tutu that I love to reference is just how many angles are going on. There's all this meta-narrative stuff there about it being a story of a story. It has these opening scenes where it says, Mukashi, Mukashi, you know? like Yeah, once upon a time. There was a man who died. And it, it's very macabre. And it, like the tone is very complicated. And the storytelling devices are very complicated. But then at the same time, it's so very clear. Mm-hmm. And there's just the character motivations though they are changed though they challenge the characters very well in this show you always know that duck wants to be with the prince and you can use that to guide your way through the show as the viewer Hmm. every single episode opens with this narrator telling a story and the pages they look like you know storybook pages that are uh, describing whatever part of the story that she's narrating. Yeah, so Mukashi Mukashi is the way uh, all fairy tales start. So it's very much like Once Upon a Time. Yep. And even though it is absolutely 1000% a magical girl show, it's also a show that's talking about stories, about fairy tales. Mm. And it's got a lot to say about them. And I will say, too, that this weirdness kind of extends not just in those opening sequences with the Once Upon a Time, 
but especially when Princess Tutu comes out, it is performed like a play, like a ballet, and mm. it's more blocked than storyboarded almost. And it it has this weird effect when you're watching it that it makes it feel like you're watching a play and it kind of confuses you a little bit. Yes, definitely. Even within the story itself, you have different things like, for example, an episode where they're going to watch a ballet or every single episode there's like a theme of ballet because once Duck becomes a human, she starts to attend the same school as the other characters and so you have everyone studying ballet and so on. So I think it's very um, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, a lot of angles, a lot of angles, but still very easily watchable and very clear to follow. Mm. Yes, I agree. It's also just very fascinating as it is, you know, this is a a Japanese animation that's very much taking from Western influence, especially German and English uh, influences. So super appealing to to someone like me. (laughs) Yeah, like there's even, you know, like Shakespearean stuff that I might not have noticed when I first watched the series if I had watched it back in uh, 2002. But it's a very interesting world and you know as the story continues we get to expand more on that world but yeah let's talk about our i guess we could say five main characters i would say <laughs> that we need to talk yep. about so uh so yes first is duck or ahidu so she is our, our protagonist she is the one that becomes princess tutu when necessary she's a very interesting protagonist i think but what do you think about duck Oh my god. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard when you're making a character that is a protagonist or that's meant to be a protagonist. You don't want an unlikable protagonist. Mm-hmm. You want to keep them engaging. And I don't know whether it was informed by Usagi from Sailor Moon or mm. like, I don't know, but the way that Duck comes across because she is so honest with how she presents herself Mm -hmm. it makes her such a likable character and she's clumsy and she's you know not the brightest or the best dancer but that's a traditional magical girl right (laughs) you don't need any of that to succeed you just need a heartfelt earnestness a passion a belief and hope and compassion to other people yeah definitely and I think that part of the charm of that is is the fact that, like, you know that she started off as a literal duck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very interesting because within the story itself, you know, it's a very, in so many ways, a very fascinating world that they are in. But, you know, there are other characters who are fully, like, anthropomorphic animals, not animals turned into people. Right. They go through life in a very different way in this place. Um, but she's the only animal that can turn into a human. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and her role as animal is is one this very funny narrative device, right? Like she will she will quack and she will turn back into a duck in the early, early bit of the show. Mm-hmm. And then she, you know, turn back and forth between a human. But then it also is this kind of very deep and very useful theming device of the rest of the animals here um like mr cat and and all the monster of the day people sometimes being animals their classmates are animals or just random people will be animals and then it's Mm -hmm. it's to say why why did they make these uh you know annie and arena 
uh, in episode two and, and all the rest, for what purpose are they animals? And I think it leads into something very core and very thematic when you get to the finale and you have talks on identity and purpose and being a minor character in a story that is not yours. Hmm. All of that is invited by the fact that the protagonist is literally a duck. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's very interesting. You said the character's name is Aunt Eaterina in that episode. <laughs> yeah. She's just Aunt Eater in Japanese. So <laughs> it's funny that they oh, gave her okay. well, a little bit more of a name. Let, that's very quickly. Let's uh, acknowledge that this does have a dub and was dubbed back in the early 2000s. And it's functional. I would say... It's not top tier English dub, but it is totally watchable for an English dub. And there are a number of great performances. The localization and script is very good as well. So mm. If you want to watch this in English, I would encourage you to do so. From what I can tell, they did a really good job. So, I mean, when I first watched it, it was in the dub and I was uh, sold, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting aspect, the animals of the series. It's to the point where sometimes you go, wait, why is there a snake at this ballet school? <laughs> yeah. But then also, like, the show doesn't even stop there. Later on in the show, there's characters that directly call this out or situations that directly call out why are these characters animals and what does that mean? Yeah, there's a lot of that throughout the story, of course, and that in itself is a theme of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about our prince, Muto. <laughs> yep. He's very interesting because he is, in a way, the hero of the story, but in a way he's not the hero of the story because he's the one who needs to be rescued and is very, I don't want to say inactive, but like kind of passive as a character he sometimes. absolutely is yeah. yeah he's he's an object that other people want to either control or acquire or you know they want to leverage him and his position as the prince in the story to get whatever it is that they want yeah so yeah he's really kept on the back burner throughout most of the first half of the show but that has a larger role in the second half of the show. It is really interesting because you don't often see a character that is that passive and submissive and controlled hmm. as Muta. Yeah, and it's very interesting because, he, well, is it because he doesn't have his heart anymore? Right, his role as the prince. Like, what caused him to be so, yeah. It's very interesting because... I think, you know, there's something to be said about him being a prince and having this kind of role in the story mm -hmm. where you might usually expect him to be the actual active hero. Right. Which he gets, he gets his moment to do that, but it's very late. <laughs> right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting kind of role because, you know, he seems, I don't want to say like boring, but he's very, very inactive. So it's very... Yeah, interesting to figure out like why is tutu so devoted to him right yeah. exactly or, <laughs> or fakir who both hold a, yeah. an immense amount of i don't know if admiration is the right word but desire for mm -hmm. yeah and yeah his role he should be the main character of his own story but in this one he is deliberately not yeah exactly so i think that in itself is a very interesting play on story tropes yep totally 
And yeah, let's move on to Rue. I think she has a lot about her that's very interesting because she is presented as a kind of antagonist, but not one that Duck wants to be an antagonist, you know, like Duck wants Rue to be her friend. And in the Japanese text, like she's always calling her Ryu-chan and is like very affectionate with her. There's a scene early on with that, right? Uh, Rue-sama, I think it is in the Japanese. Mm-hmm. In, in English, it was just Lady Rue. <laughs> Duck drags it out. And yeah. It's very funny. It's a good moment. Yeah, she's like, mm, that doesn't sound right. I'm going to call you uh, Ujian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's so I just, you know, it's again like Duck being so, uh, so innocent and pure. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and Rue, in, in contrast, is very um, jaded, I suppose, or very closeted. Mm-hmm. And she kind of looks at the world kind of like an adult would. Yeah, her personality is is very much in that way of um, I'm going to uh, treat myself as I have, you know, this type of knowledge and importance and desire. And Mm. we could sit here all day and talk about Rue. There is so much to Rue's character and portrayal and everything behind her motivations and who she is, which largely comes up later in the series. But Mm -hmm. yeah, just the fact that she operates in this story as a very weird combination of antagonist, secondary protagonist, minor character. Mm -hmm. She's such such a weird role in this story that makes it so, (laughs) so interesting. Yeah, definitely. Because like, again, you know, with everything in the story, you kind of think you know what her role is at the beginning, but it couldn't be more different by the end. And, you know, everything is very, um, you know, tied together. So it doesn't feel out of place by the time you get to that end. But she's very fascinating. (laughs) She really is. It's a joy to watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so let's go to Fakir, who is another character who goes through a lot of changes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, his role at the beginning seems very strange. Yeah. God, I hated him at the beginning of the series so much. <laughs> you are very much meant to hate Fakir. At yes, the yes. Of the series. yes. Absolutely. He is always around Muto and it seems to be trying to prevent anything from happening to him with regards to returning his heart. And, you know, he seems like another antagonist for Duck. And, you know, everyone, including Duck, is like, why Why are you doing this? And the degree to which Fakir is trying to control Muto is literally violence. Absurd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, you know, like, you're, you're made to not like this character. And at the same time, he's also, like, at odds with Rue. And it's just all, like, obviously they're presenting things with like so many secrets at the beginning of the show but yeah he's a very interesting character i would say like the depths of his character are also kind of spoilery so we'll get into that later but absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 what do you think about fakir yeah as you say he is an interesting study on purpose and i think rue and fakir together they struggle with their identity and with purpose pretty early on in the series mm. he's very effective in his role as um something for Tutu to have to deal with early on but then the joy of seeing who Fakir becomes by the end of the of the show is fantastic oh yeah definitely (laughs) he's a very fascinating character to be sure 
And I guess now we can talk about our, hmm, I don't want to say, main character is not the right word for him, but mm-hmm. Drosselmeyer. <laughs> yep. He's the dead writer who is the one who is um, talking to Tutu, but you can also see him throughout the series reacting to different story points. And he's a very fascinating character. He's illustrated completely differently from all the other characters. And he just like looks almost like clownish in how he's portrayed. And he's just always like laughing to himself and so on. He's very fascinating as a character. But what do you think about him? Oh my god. If I could name my favorite characters in all of fiction, Drosselmeyer would be one of them. Absolutely. Mm. Because Drosselmeyer has this irreverence to everything that's going on that I love, and that is my number one favorite thing in any type of anything ever, is irreverence and not taking everything super seriously because he knows it's a story. He made it up himself. And even Mm -hmm. when things kind of deviate or change or he can't exert his control on the story as he is dead then he still kind of takes it in stride and is is taken back by it but he knows that what makes a good story is the characters being put in difficult situations and seeing how they react and his fascination with tragedy the way he's used as a meta-narrative device the concept I bring up often is that of diegesis. Drosselmeyer exists out of the story, mm-hmm. but at times he does directly influence characters in the story. Yeah. And it's so weird and so wild in the way that it's done that it allows for some of the best moments of diegetic distance warping that I have ever seen in any degree of fiction. Mm. And I love it. Yeah, yeah. So Drosselmeyer's name comes from the Nutcracker, which is something that is yep. very directly referenced throughout the series. So music from the Nutcracker yeah, is used yep. throughout the series. And so his role is very similar to the character of Drosselmeyer in the Nutcracker, controlling the stage, setting the stage up, and so on. Because you've brought up the music, I do want to make reference that the music in the entire score of Princess Tutu is classical ballet music. I don't classical but um Mm -hmm. orchestral ballet music and my friend told me this i am not a classical music buff or anything along those lines i haven't seen that many ballet however he said that each piece that is going on on the show for the episode that ballet that it is drawn from will match the circumstances of what is happening in the episode of princess tutu Mm. and that blew my mind yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot that I, I I definitely need to go into more detail someday. I talked to some people on the Discord server as I was watching the series. And, you know, there's an episode later on that it references like a very adult ballet. And one of my server members was a little uh, disturbed by that. But like then when I explained the context, he was like, oh, that makes that makes sense. Okay, never mind. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so i know that that's definitely like it's not a world that i've been in since i was like you know maybe six years old so it's not something i'm super familiar with myself but it definitely makes me very interested in learning more about these ballets because you know it's something that you can see yeah (laughs) and it's clear that ito just cared so much about it and the creative staff behind the show really wanted that to be a thing Mm -hmm. that was included in the show 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad they did because, you know, there is something a bit more powerful about it. And I think in a way that also is great for even Western audiences, because at minimum, everyone has listened to the Nutcracker Suite, I think. (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's something that, like, I think is very familiar for many people, therefore more effective than if they had tried to write an original score for this series that was, like, referencing it, but not exactly the same. 100%. Yeah, the music is used very fantastically, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Are there any other characters that you think we should talk about before we continue on? The only other one I think is kind of spoilery, but the character of Adel. Ah, yes. Hmm. Yes. She is a puppet controlled by Drosselmeyer, who is put into the story. Mm-hmm. But she is kind of the first instance we see of characters playing a role and challenging the role that they're given in the story, which becomes a large theme. Adel's function in the story is very understated, but she does kind of knock open the door for everything everything weird that kind of happens in the rest <laughs> of the show. Yeah, her role is very interesting because she is a literal puppet that always seems to appear when Tutu or Duck needs her around. You know, she kind of is like this parallel that maybe not everyone quite realizes. <laughs> totally. Her role is very interesting as well, I think. Yeah. So I think now that we're going to talk more about the actual plot points, I think it's fair to say we can get into stuff that's more spoilery, if that's okay. Spoilers, yes. (laughs) It feels incomplete to talk about this series without getting into the full story. Absolutely. We can't skip around it. We have to talk about like everything. So. 100% agree. Yes, yes. So, you know, for the beginning of this series, it starts off pretty simply where every week we're getting a different character who has been affected by a piece of the prince's heart, uh, Mito's heart. And so Princess Tutu has to dance with this character in order to rescue them and get this heart back to a fragment state, like a jewel state, and then give it back to Muto. Exactly. Yeah. And it is, I, I want to jump in right quick there and say that okay. it, yeah. there is this really cool dynamic in magical girl shows that are episodic and are monster of the day. There are some shows where the monster of the day is literally just a throwaway goof character. It's like a tennis ball or a doorknob that's transformed into a monster and it doesn't talk at all. And then they the pretty cures just punch or kick it and then they heal it. <laughs> and it's mostly just an avenue to have a fight scene in in the episode. And any type of like thematic redemption or like actual character building is saved for the mid-season baddies or the final baddies. Hmm. And I think there are some notable exclusions to that or people that break that rule. Something like Heartcatch Pretty Cure, very famous for actually making the episodic character of the day be somebody a character who needs to have their issues solved and princess tutu is much more in that vein of it is really this circumstance that is presented for this character and then tutu has to by compassion and understanding say dance with me and talk about your issues and let's come to an emotional resolution here before Mm -hmm. The battle is over. 
Yeah, you're right. You know, depending on what Magical Girl series you're talking about, there's a difference in the story of someone, yeah, like you said, like a, a monster that is made from something inanimate and then a series that has something, maybe Shigokara or, or yes, a c- certain seasons of Precure as well, where you're seeing the villains like kind of take advantage of the temporary weakness of an everyday person, examining actual struggles that people have in daily life yeah the ways that it's presented in this particular series are so they're like so unique in the issues and it's always about like being overtaken by a specific emotion because each fragment of Mito's heart is for a specific emotion uh, or part of his heart that's so cool too because like it doesn't start like the the episode 12 climax is the emotion of love right but Mm -hmm. it starts with like despair and sorrow and and like very negative emotions and then princess tutu returns these to muto and then he regains that emotion and then he's just terrified and you're like oh no princess tutu what have you done giving him these negative emotions Yeah, yeah. You know, it's this thing where it seems like such a simple task at first. And then you remember that actually, when we look at someone's heart or someone's emotions, there's a range of emotions that people don't necessarily want to feel. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think it's also very interesting, like, I'm sure there could be a reading of Princess Tutu and especially Muto's character looking at mental health, like depression, anxiety. Totally. Not really feeling anything. Yep. In order to not feel bad things. Yeah. Yep. Yes, absolutely. But then at the same time, the emotions being used leads to this like story moment that is so great for me. And it comes mm-hmm. in episode seven. And this is like one of my favorite moments in all of anime. This is mm-hmm. when Tutu decides to throw away the pendant that allows her to become a human and Princess Tutu. And she chucks mm-hmm. it off a bridge. And Drosselmeyer freaks out. He stops time, comes back into the story, and tells her not to do that, don't do that. But she does yeah. it anyway because she's just causing Muto pain. And what right. she wanted to do in the beginning and the glamour that was thrust upon her to do that doesn't match her original intent. Mm. This is like genius. This is like genius level storytelling and oh god it's so good because it like plays off all these really simple ideas that are presented in something like um like a sailor moon mm-hmm. she wants to be have this miracle romance in her past life and she wants to be a superheroine right in episode one she wants to be like sailor v and then it's not all cakes and roses and very easy for sailor moon of course mm-hmm. but it all does kind of work out But here, by the machinations of this kind of storyteller who wants tragedy, Mm. the promise that is given to Duck is tragic. It's inherently unsatisfying. And then she's put in this very terrible position where she has to Mm -hmm. choose. And seeing her make that decision is so cool. Yeah, definitely. And in the episode before that, Duck had given Muto a piece of his heart that was for fear and that ended with him saying like publicly in front of everyone, I'm afraid of Princess oh, Tutu. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 
And it's oh. like of naturally very devastating to hear because that's not what she came here for. Like you said, like exactly. that's not what she wanted. And it's this interesting thing where it's like, a, you know, again, like it's only seven episodes in. So we're not even like a third of the way into the story. And yet we're getting to this point where it's kind of like commenting already on everything that's going on. And like you said, yeah, Drosselmeyer is like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. No, you can't quit. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I thought I can't end here. That's the <laughs> one thing. The one thing Drosselmeyer insists. The story cannot end. No. Yeah. Yes. It's very fascinating. I, w- I will say that it, it reminds me, too, of it's Princess Tutu is considered like an advanced magical girl show or like a non-standard magical girl show in a couple ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it is largely because it doesn't follow the conventions of a lot of the genre. Sure. But because of that, it ends up lumped together, I think very rightly, with Puella Magi Madoka Magica. Mm. And that is the element that we just talked about that I feel comes across in Princess Tutu and comes across in Madoka Magica. So if you liked Madoka Magica, <laughs> you should check out Princess Tutu. Sure. Jocelyn Meyer is definitely a very interesting character in that way that when you first meet him, you think he's just like a goofy old man that like <laughs> right, right. he looks so ridiculous even in the way that he's illustrated you don't really take him that seriously but this is kind of the point where it's like what's going on with this guy he's like oh stopping my- everything to talk to her all the time and so you start to question everything because at first you know you think you know the people worth questioning but yeah, this is definitely a very interesting turning point in the series. Yeah. And it's interesting that it happens so early on, because like, yeah. as you said, like the mid-season finale, episode 13, is where things start to really completely change. And then the whole story changes from there. So, right. yeah. I will say that if we're going like my top moments in Princess Tutu, the mid-season finale is, is up there too. Um, and I think mm. it's before the mid-season finale, when... You know, Drosselmeyer is sitting there commenting on the story for 12 episodes and in episode seven, he jumps in and he stops it and Mm. you're kind of confused. But then in episode 12 or 13, Cray, he literally turns and says, isn't that right, Era Drosselmeyer? And she breaks the Mm. fourth wall to address Drosselmeyer directly. And I leapt out of my seat when that happened. That's Mm. so good. Yeah, things start to really change a lot. Again, like, it's like this huge turning point. It kind of, yeah, it does start more within episode 12 and then finishes with episode 13. But Rue, who, I can't remember which episode, which she first turns to Princess Creaky, but... Right, it's pretty early on. It's like... It is pretty early, yeah. 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 She becomes her own princess, this opposite of Princess Tutu, you know, in a very literal, like, white and black sort of situation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she's a very interesting, again, like, antagonist, but she seems very aware of everything that is going on at the same time. Right, and her confusion, along with Fakir's confusion, too, is what carries those episodes between, like, 7 and 13. Mm -hmm. They don't know their identity, and then Rue must perform as Princess Krahi almost mm-hmm. and there's this fantastic episode I think it's eight or nine it's the one with the art girl is the monster of the day mm-hmm. Princess Tutu has Rue or Princess Krahi there and Krahi's like super confused she can't figure out which way's up or what why she's doing what she's doing and mm. then Princess Tutu reaches out her hand and she's about to reach out to her and understand her mm. and then at that very moment 
Fakir comes bursting in and he says, get away from her, you crow. Hmm. And I think this invites the idea of identity. Hmm. That by labeling her as a crow, by pushing her away, then Fakir has done the opposite of the magical girl. He has reduced her. He has labeled her and made her out to be nothing more than a crow. But hmm. Duck insists, as we said, on calling her Ruchan, right? Even when she is Krahi and identifies as Krahi, Duck would say, no, you're Rue, and mm. that's who, who I know you are. And this is just one example of the multitude of ideas of identity that are challenged in this show. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's very interesting because what you're looking at is like the difference between one's identity and one's role in a story. I think especially by that point, Rue is trying to understand her identity while she is playing this role that she doesn't quite understand either. Oh, totally. Yeah. We should mention the quote, the famous quote from this show. May those who accept their fate be granted happiness. May those who defy their fate be granted glory. Yeah. It's very, very deep. <laughs> now that we're in spoiler town, we could talk about like Adel is the same thing. She denies mm -hmm. her role in the play. And she yeah. refuses to serve the role that Drosselmeyer gave to her. Hmm. And that kind of opens up the door for the rest of the characters to explore who they really are, who they want to be. Yes, yes. And, you know, that part is so interesting because, you know, that's going back to yeah the mid-season. And that was really interesting as well for me, you know, was, again, watching it for the first time, realizing that. I didn't hate Fakir anymore. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we by this point have seen that when Fakir has come across Duck in her Duck form, he's been so kind to it. It's right. like, is this the same person? You know? <laughs> and he had all his backstory too of, of the past killing his parents and all that stuff. Just yeah, that's, oh gosh, there's so, yeah. there's so much going on there. But yeah, as uh, Fakir and Duck become closer, it becomes just very sweet, I think. Yeah, yeah like it, it, a lot of magical girl shows will kind of like forego the element of romance because their audience is younger or it's just not a part of the show and it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be. Mm. But Princess Tutu is, is not. It deliberately does invite the idea of this kind of organic romance and ducks searching for romance and, and finding a different or what love truly is in a different way than she thought. And same for Rue and same for uh, Muta and Fakir. Yeah, definitely. It's very fascinating because I think everyone has this kind of idea at the beginning of the story of what especially love means, but even like other aspects as well, you know, and then by the end, they have completely different ideas of what it means, you know. Oh, totally. And the other thing with that is selfish love. Mm -hmm. And that's a large theme throughout the second part of the show. Mm. Love only me, Muto will say. Yes, yes. It's very interesting because, you know, like, yeah, in the second half of the series, again, spoiler alert, so Muto gets corrupted by the raven, our central villain, I guess, in the main story uh, as penned by yeah. Drosselmeyer. So it becomes this obsession in the second half of the series with the monster of the week is now just Muto himself. You know, obviously already, like, turn everything has just become turned on its head at this point, and it's of course, very painful for Tutu as well. She has to try to fight him directly while 
trying to save the person that is being corrupted by Muto. Yep. And I love it so much. He becomes kind of this anti-Tutu of preying on these negative emotions and, mm-hmm. and selfish love. And Tutu then has to have a talk it out like therapy battle directly mm-hmm. with Muto and directly with the person of the week and reemphasize the positivity. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And then, you know, at the same time, we're dealing with all of the like day to day stuff between uh, especially Duck and Fakir but also with Rue and everyone is trying to figure out what what they're supposed to do, I guess. <laughs> yeah, really, because then there's a quote later on in like episode 25, I think it is, like mm-hmm. right near the end. And Fakir directly says, people are so used to playing the roles that they've been dealt and not having to think for themselves. Mm. And yeah, that's the majority of the second part of like, if you aren't, prescribe this role or you don't want that role what role do you want then what Mm -hmm. future do you want to build and what choices will you take to make that happen Mm. and that's always been what i come to fiction for and what i like about stories and the magical Mm. girl genre is challenge these characters and ask them to prove what's meaningful yeah obviously this you know story within a story this kind of stage play this ballet in this series is reflecting our reality like and i think especially in the fact that like the setting is literally a town that no one can leave right it becomes very much like oh this could be anywhere this could be in our world somehow um and i will say if if you watch enough magical girl shows you can start drawing some parallels pretty easily like the town functions very much in the same way as otree academy from uh revolutionary girl lutina Mm-hmm. then there's elements, I think, a lot of elements that were borrowed in the Madoka Magica movie Rebellion directly from the show. And mm. a lot of the ballet imagery was assumed, but being trapped in there and, you know, figuring it out. And um, yeah, the, when literally later in Princess Tutu, the walls of the town come down mm. and they walk outside and, you know, in the resolution, there's that shot of the town in its little thing in Germany. And like, you see the landscape outside the town, which you hadn't for the entire show. Hmm. It's, oh, it's wild. Definitely. It's, there's so much that you can talk about with this series yeah. and its narrative points for sure. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Duck's two friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they may be the most underrated and awesome characters in the show. Hmm. They're named PK and Lilier, mm-hmm. and they are fellow students in the Ballet Academy with Duck right from the beginning, right from episode one. And they are, you know, participants in the story. PK gets uh, trapped or enticed by Mewtwo later on when he's mm-hmm. in Love Only Me phase. However, they are also very much audience inserts or like <laughs> meta narrative commentary on what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, like Lilier is a duckophile. Like she really loves what's going on with Duck. She makes comments that it's so cute how she's struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, they are friends, they do help her, but they are mostly so aware of their role as minor characters in this story Mm -hmm. and how much of a backseat they take and they're so engaged with how much duck is messing up as a person as a character or all the emotions that she's Mm -hmm. undergoing it's just crazy that they even thought to put characters like this (laughs) in this show 
Yeah, yeah. They're definitely kind of like the, uh, I think of them as like a Greek chorus. Yes, exactly. Yep. But at the same time, they don't know everything that's going on, it seems, right? Because like, they right. don't necessarily know about the identity of Princess Tutu. They're only looking at everything from what they see at face value. But they will pick up on stuff that even Duck herself doesn't realize until later. It's obviously played for laughs how much they don't know about what's going on in Duck's life. But, you know, there are instances where they're like, oh, yeah, you must love Fakir. So we're going to like help you out with like you know putting you two together and she's like what are you guys talking about <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah they're much more genre aware they realize that the romance is blooming with fakir and duck way before either of the characters yeah and yeah that's why i think they're kind of like directing you the viewer on how you are to consume this mm. as a story as like a traditional anime romance <laughs> comedy almost and that's so wild it's so wild yeah they're very funny and um yeah they're just very interesting characters generally yeah. in terms of their role for sure because like you said they don't have a story we don't know anything about them <laughs> right 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 so in this quote like where all these other characters challenge their roles um mm -hmm. what they've been given in this story these two don't they just accept it and because yeah. they accept their fate they are granted happiness and they're, yeah, they're the perfectly most... happy <laughs> yeah. Yeah. should we i guess talk about the resolution the stuff that happens later in the show kind of mm -hmm. the back half so in later in the show, uh, the big catalyst is that Fakir abandons his role as knight and in doing so accidentally kind of discovers his role as storyteller, that he is yes. a direct descendant of Drosselmeyer and has the power to create stories hmm. from within the story. It gets very weird very quickly. It's how, very how, meta. How did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you feel about it? Well, I kind of had a slight inkling of understanding about that. Like, I don't know if it's like something I had read before, but mm -hmm. like finally getting to see it, it was very interesting where, yeah, the way that it's like first presented, it's like, gosh, it's episode 20. This woman, she shows up and looks like she might be a potential like past love interest to Fakir. It's like super unclear. Yeah, or like an older sister relationship, or it, it yeah. is really, really unclear, yeah. Yeah, but in any case, you know, she gets to spend some time with Duck and tells her that, you know, Fakir used to write stories that would come true, and so Duck was so excited by this news, like, wow, Fakir has his power I didn't even know about, and um, she runs back and is like, oh my god, you can help us with this situation. He's like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and then you find out it's because he accidentally killed his parents with a story or something like that I... it's not clear like i think he tried to write a story and it didn't come true and it resulted in the death of his parents oh is that what it was yeah yeah, yeah because yeah. yeah so of course that's incredible like the death of your parents and feeling yeah. responsible for the death of your parents is gonna be like super traumatic <laughs> it's not like it excuses his abuse towards muto earlier in the series but sure. you, you do kind of more understand why he is so reticent to have muto leave him hmm. and how much that would hurt yeah i would never want to excuse his behavior at the beginning of the series sure. and i don't think he does either I, I, yeah i yeah. don't think the show does either yeah for sure it's obviously 
with like everything in the series it's very complicated <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what i love about it yeah it's this thing where it feels like he is playing a role but he's not really again sure as to why like with rue like with everyone and him kind of rediscovering this old role or I don't even know if being a writer is a role in itself in this particular story, but because it, it kind of goes against Drosselmeyer. Right, right. It's more like ability. Yeah. And it, I guess you could think about it in that way that people are granted certain things and whether you take advantage of them or not is up to you. Mm-hmm. But he has the ability to write, but it it's not just like, oh, he can write and then they have like a Code Geass like, or L or Psychopath battle back and forth with Drosselmeyer and um, Fakir. It doesn't really ever get to that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for Fakir because he has to, it's a way of saying, what does he want to happen? And he can only write what he believes in or he trusts and at times it's very hard for him to write Mm. things this goes into like these really good moments like for as much as i meme on the tree episode it may be kind of the weirdest (laughs) uh bit of princess tutu sure (laughs) but it is like this incredibly emotional climax when he writes tutu out of being trapped in the gravestone in drosselmeyer's space Mm. later on and just like tutu called him out of the tree earlier on and that Man. Yeah, the tree thing, it did feel a little out of nowhere, but it was <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's probably symbolic because, yeah, at that point, we get, again, going back to puppets, right. Tutu is being made to, like, turn into a literal puppet, and she can't control her own body, and it's terrifying. And right. there's strings on screen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and um, when Fakir gets her out of there, right, literally writes her out of that space, and there's the whole thing with the tree. I don't know if it's meant to be this way, but I was thinking about a tree as being, you know, made of wood and wood being the main thing that puppets are made out of. Hey, there you go. That's not bad. <laughs> or a paper, yeah. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, um, you know, like kind of returning to an original form, as it were, but this is not magical girls, but that scene with the tree and Fakir naked in front of the big tree on the hill. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone listening has played the legend of Zelda Majora's mask, but the very final scene of Majora's mask is in this exact same imagery. And I just crack up every time I see it because I, all I think of is the Zelda game. Interesting. Yeah. I've personally never played a Zelda game, but um, someone will know someone will be laughing high five i'm sure there are definitely listeners who have played the zelda series but (laughs) yeah that is interesting in any case yeah the whole thing you know fakir's change in his role and also of course rue's change in her role and her realizing how much her role has been set for her is very very interesting and yeah like we said you know it's not until the final part of the whole story that Muto finally becomes the hero. Right, that he yeah. that he takes up the mantle and he through the dint of Princess Tutu, she gives him back the final heart shard and he becomes the fully realized prince again. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have this crisis of identity so much. I mean, earlier in the, yeah. in the show, he doesn't have his heart and he can't function in that way, but he doesn't not want to be the prince. He wants to be the prince who loves everyone. He just makes the decision actually in the in the climax to love Rue. Mm-hmm. 
as his princess very directly. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's his only really growth point. Yeah, definitely. The whole thing with the ending and the final part of his heart actually being the pendant that yeah. Duck uses to transform into Princess Tutu. So giving him that piece means giving up being Princess Tutu and also giving up being a girl completely. Yes. Yes, and it's so great because she's unable to do it in episode 25. Yes. She can't release the clasp on the locket to give it to him, mm. even though she consciously wants to, because she's still clinging to this idea of being together with the prince as a human. Mm -hmm. And like she has to go through this whole thing, and that's the fakir has to go fish her out of the bottom of the lake of despair, and it's a whole thing thing yes and that's the thing i love about princess tutu is how well the character motivation and character issues are embodied by what's going on in the story mm. the semiotics the metaphors the stuff like that and it's all throughout it's all the characters it's all the monsters of the day it's so good yes it's very beautiful and very heartwarming especially because duck finally she dances as a duck yeah Yep. Oh gosh, it's so uh, heart wrenching. Something I reference all the time in like, what is a magical girl show? It is the triumph of grace. Hmm. It is the girl part transcending above the magic part. Hmm. And it's in the context of Princess Tutu, it is then the realization that Duck is doing what she can do with what she was given because she believes in it. And she is going to use her imperfect dancing, but still convey her wants and desires onto the world mm -hmm. yeah it's very very lovely um it's a and she turns into a swan yeah too, as we were saying the ugly duck mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and it's very interesting throughout the series as well when other characters see princess tutu they see a swan yes right yeah, yeah. so that definitely is like a whole thing throughout the series <laughs> the fully realized Muto, when he is the prince and he, he has all his heart shards back, mm -hmm. he finds out that Duck was actually a duck. And he still calls her Princess Tutu. Mm. It goes back to that theme that we were talking very much earlier about identity. And it's why I'm so glad in the English dub they left Duck's name as Duck mm -hmm. instead of translating it as Ahiru which many anime will do nowadays. I was watching the Nichijo dub and the character's name is Professor, but they leave it untranslated as Hakase, right? Huh. That sounds so strange. <laughs> Her name is Professor. That's who she is. She's a character who is a professor. And yeah. I'm so glad that Duck left it as Duck because it means so much. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when Fakir says, you crow. You know, it's when Muto says, thank you, Princess Tutu, to even the duck. Mm -hmm. That it's like, what is your identity? What is the name that you are given? Mm -hmm. And what do you want to be? And what do your actions show you as? Yeah, yeah. That is actually very interesting because that is something that, in terms of translation, I think is very important sometimes. And, and especially in this story, yes, it is very important that her name is Duck because she is simply a duck, but maybe not simply a duck. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, again, ties right back into all the stuff about your role that you're given or, or what lot you have drawn in life and how you fight back against it. Mm -hmm. the themes of fate and, um, yeah, boy, everything. Yes, yes. The only other character we haven't talked about that I think is worth talking about is the new puppet in the second half yeah. of the series, Uzura. Uzura. Yeah. 
<laughs> she's innocent, right? Mm -hmm. Or she needs to have things explained to her, like what is lovey-dovey and, and, and stuff like that. Mm. And she does function in a lot of the same ways that Adel did mm -hmm. to draw the characters along and point out when they're being untrue to themselves. Mm. Uh, my favorite thing with Uzura is the very, very ending you know, after everything has been resolved and then Drosselmeyer and her <laughs> walk off and he says, come on, Ado, we'll go to a new story. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, she does have a little bit of a role in that she helps the characters to get their flashbacks and revelations at the end when she turns the gears backwards. Oh, yeah, that is a thing that happens. <laughs> Oh man, there's so much stuff in yeah. the show that I even forgot about. That. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. that totally does happen. She meets herself, I guess, because she is definitely like made from Adel, yes. but she meets Adel as a ghost, and that's like her only act of like defiance, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. well, I, I guess it's kind of reflective to what she does on calling out the other characters for the lies that they tell themselves mm -hmm. throughout a couple points in the story. So that's kind of equivalent to moving the story backwards uh, man it's all it all ties in on itself it's, yes again it's just such a well put together story for sure <laughs> so i guess we should move on to the few problems with the story there aren't many but there are some mm -hmm. so you know as we had already mentioned you know especially at the beginning of the series we see a lot of abuse especially towards uh, muto but also towards other characters and, you know, there's just a lot of gaslighting and gaslighting. Like, yep. a lot of stuff totally. where we just don't understand what's going on. As, you know, Drosselmeyer is also kind of a dick at the beginning. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very yeah. not a good person. Yeah, I will say that the show doesn't present any of it as, you know, in a positive light, of course. Yeah. It's just very, very much a show that has a very high amount of tough subjects and and choices from characters that i would think would be come across as not acceptable sure um and i, I think the show calls them on that yeah i think so too but the uh, only other thing i think that needs to be mentioned is the main teacher at the ballet school at least duck's teacher mr cat mr cat yes. yeah, yeah, yeah he is a cat a bachelor cat yeah, a bachelor cat very <laughs> important detail so there is a running gag where at least once per episode that he appears, he is trying to get uh, someone to marry him. And marriage to him is presented as a punishment for bad students. It's very peculiar. Like, it's clearly just this weird gag throughout the series because it ends with him, like, when everything is uh, all... I guess to fix the town is back to normal. You see this cat that is clearly what was Mr. Cat. Um, he got his little kitten. Yeah, he's got his family. He's got what yeah. he wanted. But it's it's such a peculiar thing where it's like, I don't know if it's meant to be like a, a kind of like small parallel to the whole story where he has this thing he wants in life that he cannot get. Because we don't see any other cats throughout the series. Like, 
there is another character that is interested in him that he's not interested in. Yeah. I was about to bring that yeah. up. That yeah, in this running gag, they actually do an episode with it where I think it's a goat yeah. uh, is into Mr. Cat, and they go through all that. And I, I really love that scene too, where he's talking to the goat and explaining why he doesn't want to marry her mm-hmm. in spite of all his threatening marriage proposals. Yeah, and then both Fakir and Rue overhear the conversation and like take it away as like clarity of like what do i want what actually it's like this big character moment for both of them yeah where they realize that what they say is not what they really want mm. it's like oh but no it, it it is also a really awkward kind of uncomfortable moment mm-hmm. when he continues to do it to the young ballet girl yeah yeah because these are like literally kids that he keeps threatening to marry and you know it's yeah. clear like the way it's presented he treats it the same when he's trying to like propose to other like full women oh, yeah. as well Adult women yeah, yeah. yeah so it's not like he's specifically interested in young girls exactly but it's more like he's interested in literally anyone except for the goat <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they push it right up against the edge of like is he being serious mm-hmm. he says it enough and he seems serious enough about mm-hmm. it but it's always comedic but then at times you're like oh god he oh, yeah <laughs> yeah if this was like a standalone thing in just this story i wouldn't mind but considering that magical girl series in general have this really terrible habit of having these situations with students and teachers it does feel like it needs sure. to be brought up in the context of that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Totally. Mm. It's like, again, you know, it's a gag thing. So it's not taken seriously by anyone, really. So, <laughs> yeah. We should, we should mention, too, that Tutu is a very funny show. Oh, yes. And there are a lot of, like, exaggerated faces and stuff that makes it feel comedic in spite of what is an incredibly dark tone and, mm. and a very dark story. Yeah, definitely. Especially Duck's friends. Um, PK, Lilia, yeah. So comedic in their understanding of everything. <laughs> and yeah, just generally, especially when you are really dealing with a world in which, you know, animals are anthropomorphic and you have Tutu dancing with a cat teacher and, you know, there are other animals in the class and it's very funny because it's, yeah, like you said, in the even in the first episode, Duck is like, why is the teacher a cat? And no one else thinks this is strange. And everybody's like, you can't ask that. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, that screenshot goes around. I see that screenshot every now and again, where it's from like episode one or two, mm-hmm. where it's all the little girls in their ballet, you know, practice uniforms mm-hmm. and then uh, an alligator in her ballet practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You see and, uh, all sorts yeah. of animals throughout the series where it's like, is this this character really uh, doing ballet or art or whatever? And it's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting and it also seems to be tied to, like you said, the whole idea of the whole town being under this kind of story curse, as it right. were. <laughs> There's that one moment late in the series where the characters come into the story and then they have this line of like was mom always a pack mule or something like that yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and yeah i I think there's a challenge if you want to get into like literature analysis or or semiotics and deciphering Mm -hmm. things write me this essay that and save me from doing it myself (laughs) what do the the animal characters mean do they relate to the traditional you know um 
Grimm's fairy tales that used animals, the tortoise and the hare, mm-hmm. the sour grapes and the fox and that type of stuff? Or do they do they result in the characters we got to mention, Bottom the Donkey, who is a human being who dresses as a donkey to, you know, reduce herself into the role of carrying letters to people? Yeah. Does that mean then that the animal people are only episodic people or they've been written off by other people? Or is that how other people see them? Like Duck is seen as a swan or Princess Tutu is seen as a giant swan? It's like, it runs so deep that I can't even begin to decipher it. Mm. Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing. And when it comes to fairy tales, animals play a different role in, I would say, like European fairy tales compared to Japanese fairy tales, where... Sure. It's much more common for there to be animals that can disguise themselves as humans for one reason or another or act like anthropomorphically alongside humans in Japanese folklore. It's certainly interesting because, of course, this entire story, like you said, is very, very inspired by a lot of Western aesthetics and and storylines and so on. So. Yeah, and I, it's, man, you could just talk about it for hours. I even wonder if, like, the basic story is the prince and the raven, right? Mm-hmm. Why is the prince a human and the raven an animal? Yeah. And then tie it all back into duck being a duck. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, Bottom is such an interesting character. Like, even the name Bottom is a character from A Midsummer Night's Dream, a human who gets turned into a donkey for laughs. And, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, butt jokes and so on but i don't think they they don't go into that in this particular thing <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. thankfully it's still very fascinating if you are a shakespeare fan to be sure yeah yeah and how they tie it in isn't isn't she a uh, isn't her story that she's a tall girl and you know she couldn't imagine being the lead because she's so tall and that's why she loves to help people by delivering messages especially like love letters and so on right yep 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 but she has her own confession that she wants to give to uh, someone she likes, but she's always yeah afraid to do so. Man. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so we're even saying Princess Tutu like, uses the monster of the day conventions of the magical girl genre in a very interesting way a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But then Princess Tutu will use the monster of the day conventions of Princess Tutu in very interesting ways. Like, yeah, the one that sticks out for me is when Muto is trying to love only me. And in the second half of the series, there's one episode where Krahe tries to play that role and tries to get people to love her. Yeah and fill that and get the heart for um, the Raven, mm. but she just can't, or it doesn't work out in the same way. And it's, it's just the wildest thing that they keep breaking it. They keep checking your expectations and forcing you to reevaluate what these mean. It's so cool. And I know I say hyperbole. I know I say that it's the best mm-hmm. and I know it's say it's, it's so good, but Honestly, I've seen a lot of magical girl shows. I've seen a lot of just regular anime in general. And you don't often see things like that. You don't often Mm. see that amount of care and thought and deliberate messing with the structure put into a show. Mm. And all of those things contribute to why I think Princess Tutu is like the best show (laughs) I've ever seen. It's very unique in, in its like meta qualities, to be sure. I love it. I love those things. Yeah. yeah. Have you read the comic, by the way? Oh, no, I'm afraid I don't know much about manga. Hmm, that's fair. So the comic is very different. I haven't read it either. But I know for one thing, it's very different in that Drosselmeyer is not a character in the comic at all. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. 
it's kind of hard for me to imagine how it functions. Like, I think all the other characters are there. And I would love to visit the comic at some point for the podcast and talk about it with another guest who's read it because it sounds like it is a very different retelling of the story. And this is, you know, very common where, you know, this is something where this was an animated series and then a comic. And usually when it happens in the reverse like that, there are a lot of interesting differences. Yeah, I would be interested in hearing that episode. So I'll be waiting for you to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we have yet to actually cover just comics in any episode, but we're going to have to do it at some point for sure. Okay. <laughs> we're just about at the end here, but was there anything else you wanted to say about Princess Tutu? I know you can talk about it forever, but... Boy, boy, boy. I'd like to kind of end off on the idea that first brought me to Princess Tutu or that I discovered by looking at Princess Tutu as it relates to Aria the Animation, Revolutionary Galutna, Penguin Drum, all born out of Junichi Sato or Kunihika Ikahara. Mm -hmm. And the way I saw it and the way I looked at the magical girl genre for a while, and I think it holds up, is the magical versus the girl, the grace versus the glamour. And glamour being this this idea of I want to be someone who can be with the prince and transforming and getting these powers or Sailor Moon wanting to have that fantasy life. Mm -hmm. Then the grace is the end scene of Princess Tutu, the, literally the ending song where it's just Duck, it's just Fakir together on the lake, happy with who they are and content with the people around them. Mm. The value, or you can learn a lot in a show by judging the value of grace as it relates to glamour. And I think if you wanted to look into the other works of Junichi Sato, specifically Arya or Tamayura, things along those lines, you see how much he came to like the stories where grace wins out. But I think that along the way and why I love Princess Tutu the most is as Trousselmeyer says, that's how this story moves along in a direction most undesirable for all concerned. Now show me a magnificent tragedy. That is how I see Princess Tutu as the ultimate triumph of grace, of duck dancing, of accepting who she is and what she wants. But at the same time, just a whole lot of glamour that gets in the way and that she has to struggle with. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And again, yeah, I could definitely keep talking about it for forever, but forever. we do forever. not have the time. <laughs> but yes, um, Kai, thank you so much for talking to me today about Princess Tutu. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me the avenue to talk about this. I've been meaning to do this in some way, shape, or form for years now. So thank mm -hmm, you. Mm -hmm. Do you have a magical persona for yourself? Oh, no. Yeah, I know you kind of ask every one of this, and I've always been interested to hear the replies because it seems like almost universally people have said, like, yeah, or, or that magical girl shows in general were an avenue by which they could explore some something about themselves and for me the magical girl genre was always much more thematic there's a wonderful book that i would encourage you all to read it's a collection of interviews done by fans of sailor moon the book's name or title is her eternal moonlight and it describes each of these fans of sailor moon but probably applies to all magical girls of what did you find in the magical girl genre and i never really needed a persona i never mm -hmm. really needed empowerment or you know um representation 
and you know that's who I am and what I grew up with but I needed the themes I needed to see that love and justice triumph and compassion and understanding have real and tangible power yeah. that's what drew me to the magical girl genre instead of you know any um sparkles or named attacks or or fun <laughs> stuff like that sure so that's my disappointing answer and my good answer is that i would be absolutely drosselmeyer a hundred percent am aligned with him very interesting yeah Show me a magnificent tragedy <laughs> he's right that it, throughout all of it it did make for the interesting story Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And I just wanted to tell you, it's okay to not have a magical persona. Not everyone does. Okay. Like you said, it really depends on how you come into the genre, what you're looking for within the genre. And I think for, for many people, they want to become the people they see on screen. And so it makes sense to have yeah. a persona in that. I totally understand that. Yeah, I, I totally respect it. I <laughs> totally got it. And that's what makes it so great that there's so many different avenues by which these stories will affect you. Yeah, absolutely. Would you ever be interested in making your own Magical Girl story in the future? Well, I will say, and uh, if I can translate into um, self-promotion with this sure. one, one of the things I have done, if you liked the long diatribes about themes and, and character writing and character motivations, um, then you should definitely check out my channel at youtube.com slash clear and sweet, where I am currently my next project after analyzing every shot, every line of Madoka Magica, all 12 episodes, just like I did for the disappearance of Haruhi Suzumiya, just like I did for Adolescence of Utna. My next project is rewriting Madoka Magica Rebellion to be let's say, more coherent with the characters of the show and the resolution we see in episode 12 of that show. Mm. Yes, I think that it is foolish to assume you could do it better than uh, somebody who has been doing it for a while, but that still makes it fun to try. Sure, yeah, very interesting. Generally, your uh, your analyses are very interesting, and you don't just do Magical Girls all the time, even though that is definitely your main thing. Yeah, but... I know you finished uh, Near Automata. Oh, yeah. No spoilers. This isn't a Near Automata cast, but uh, did you, how did you find the ending of that? Because I have a video on that uh -huh. as well. Yeah, I watched the video. I have to say, I did not personally play the game. Oh, I did right. assist my husband in the finishing ending E. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. His hands need to play. So. Oh, I love I it. Did Part, I love it. I love it. Uh, because that particular aspect of the game is identical to uh, an aspect of Sly 3, the third Sly Cooper game. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was like, oh, I got this. I know exactly what to do. So it's, it's fine. But but also, it's actually totally relevant to the, the narrative distance that occurs in Princess Tutu. Sure. And, you know, the, and all the themes, all everything that we've talked about. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it touches on exactly the same elements of what do you want and who are you? Mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. man. Yeah, yeah. It. And that, of course, Love in it. that particular case, it's more interactive. So I bought all the novels for Near Automata. So I'm excited to read those in the future. Yeah. Awesome. Mm. <laughs> mm. Great. Other than your YouTube channel, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at Clear and Sweet. You can find me on Discord if you want to private message me. It's uh, K-A-I, Kai, number 1144. 
mm-hmm. happy to hear whatever you have to say if it's about princess tutu or anything else <laughs> other than that yeah nothing else thank you so much for having me on Ayu. yeah thank you very much for coming on to talk about princess tutu it's been very fun and i'm very happy that i finally got to watch the series myself <laughs> I'm happy that uh, I was in some way a catalyst for you watching it. Mm -hmm. Everybody should watch Princess Tutu. Everybody. Everybody. I always knew that I was going to enjoy the show. I just had to get around to watching it. So, yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thank you again. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you as well. Yeah, I will. Uh, it was super fun. I'm glad we got to do that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you like it. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show if you think they'd be interested. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag SparklesideChats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MagicalGirlAyu, spelled A-Y-U, and you can find me at Ayushinos, A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at sparklesidechats at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a topic you want covered or a fan or creator you want to hear from. Show notes can be found on your platform of choice or at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. You can also join the Discord for this podcast and talk about Magical Girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. Just contact me for an invite link anytime, or, if you're shy, you can get a public invite every week after the latest episode is released. If you can support the podcast financially, you can buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash With Ko-fi membership tiers, you can get bonus content, announcements about episode topics, and your name read aloud on the podcast. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at TwinkleParks. Thanks again for listening, and remember, you are magical.